Hello and welcome to Moving Kentucky Forward. I'm Bruce Maples, publisher of Forward Kentucky. If you work in Kentucky politics long enough, there are certain individuals who are just iconic. They have been working in this space for a long time. They are well known. Pretty much everybody knows them even by a shortened name. You just say the name and everybody knows who you're talking about. And one of those people is Tom Fitzgerald. Tom Fitzgerald, or Fitz as he is affectionately known, has been head of the Kentucky Resources Council for a long, long time and is getting ready to retire. Uh, This is his last general session where he will be testifying before various committees. But I wanted to catch up with him not so much about this session, but about all of his time working in Kentucky on these issues. I was very thrilled that we were able to get some time together, and I think you will enjoy uh, this interview as well as I did. And you'll get to learn uh, some things such as what he sees as the best and worst legislation he's seen in his time and about the famous shoes. So without further ado, let's listen to Tom Fitzgerald, usually known as Fitz. So we're here today with Tom Fitzgerald, affectionately known as Fitz of the Kentucky Resource Council. Uh, Tom, welcome to Moving Kentucky Forward. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I'm glad to have you here. We have uh, talked for a long time about getting this set up and finally actually got it done. And I'm pleased about that. There's all sorts of things I want to ask you, uh, not the least of which is because you are retiring. And so, you know, that that iconic presence in Frankfurt is not going to be there. So let me just add, let me just start with this. How did Kentucky Resources Council come or I hope I'm calling it right. Yeah, you are. Uh, how did it come to be and how did you wind up as the director? That's a really good question. Um, some, some of the listeners will remember that um, there was a group called the Kentucky Rivers Coalition back in the day. That was a coalition of, of mostly of farmers, uh, rural landowners and urban environmentalists, a lot of college kids uh, who were fighting the numerous projects that were being proposed uh, through the Corps of Engineers to to impound various streams and rivers in Kentucky, the Red River Gorge probably being the most um, visible of those fights. Mm. But there was also Campground, Harrodstown, Falmouth, uh, and other big dam projects that were being proposed. Um, It was, for many rural uh, Congress folks, uh, it was a way of bringing jobs back to the region. And uh, it was the era where we thought we could engineer our way around environmental constraints by impounding streams and rivers. Um, and so the, uh, uh, the Rivers Coalition uh, fought uh, you know, a number of these projects successfully. Uh, and over the years, it had kind of started to change its mission and kind of had a little bit of drift in terms of what its mission was. The last mm. big Uh, Last big initiative it was involved in was fighting the development of oil shale. Uh, There was some money right before the onset of the Reagan administration. There was money being thrown at alternative energy from Mm -hmm. Congress, uh, in part in response to the the, uh, OPEC uh, uh, oil embargo 
and the idea that we needed to be energy independent. But there were the the um, Addingtons and some other companies uh, were out leasing up land in the Knobs region for potential oil shale development for mining and then heating the oil shale in order to produce oil. Mm-hmm. And um, the Rivers Coalition fought a lot of those projects. And I think as part of that process, they realized, and if you recall, the attorney general actually sued over many of those leases. And a lot of the leases were released um, because of concerns over whether they were, were obtained fairly. And um, the Rivers Coalition changed its name to the Resources Council in order to reflect that it was doing other work besides mm-hmm. working on rivers issues. And then it had, it had kind of, you know, folks had left for the most part, it was still an organization that existed on paper. And when the Reagan administration came into office in 81, they began to restrict the types of work that legal aid could do. And I was an attorney working with the the, uh, Appalachian Research and Defense Fund, which is Eastern Kentucky's legal aid provider. And it became increasingly difficult to do the work that I was doing because I was a community lawyer and I was supposed to be spending at least a quarter of my time doing community work, organizing, and non-traditional law. So I decided to leave. I took my $2,000 in retirement and and rented an office in Frankfurt. Uh, And I came to the Kentucky Resources Council and basically rebuilt it uh, along with a new board into a legal aid provider. And so for 38 years now, we've been doing legal aid on environmental issues, air, mm. wastewater, mining, utility policy, energy policy. And we we don't charge for the work we do. Uh, we don't take um, corporate money and we don't apply for government grants. And so we, you know, we're supported by the public uh, and provide uh, legal assistance, whether it be you know, individual assistance. We do some programmatic litigation. And as you mentioned, I do a, a fair amount of mostly defensive lobbying, trying to protect the various environmental programs from being weakened. Uh, occasionally, I have the privilege of working on making progress. Um, for example, on the solid waste area back in 1991, where we were being dumped on by New York and New Jersey and some hmm. other states. Um, we completely overhauled our solid waste regulations and empowered the counties to determine their own futures regarding whether they wanted to host landfills and how they were going to manage their solid waste while we made them responsible for doing so. And so I had the privilege of working with the legislature then and in 2001 when we created the Pride Fund uh, to do litter cleanup and to close out the old city dumps and things. So occasionally we've We've gotten it right and we've made progress, but a lot of what's happened in the intervening, you know, 30 some odd years is is fighting to to keep the environmental protections that that protect the building blocks of a healthy economy from being compromised. So I think it's fair to say that you're one of those people that is respected in Frankfurt on both sides of the aisle. And that you show up in a committee hearing, and even if they might disagree with you, you are listened to respectfully and sometimes, as you say, have some influence. So how does one go about building that kind of relationship with the legislature? 
That's a really good question, and I appreciate that. I, I hope that that after after all these years, I, 1978 was the first time I was in front of the legislative committees, and I had somewhat of a rocky start. But but um, I think part of it is is that you learn that the day does belong to those who show up and who keep showing up. I, I think you learn to tell the truth because um, if your word isn't your bond, you're not going to last very long. Mm. as a as a lobbyist um and i think i I think one of the things that that um we attempt to do is to get rid of the hyperbole and to to deal in fact uh to not overstate positions and to not demonize those who who we don't agree with you know um i think it was it was um howard baker who I think would have made an excellent president if he'd ever had the chance to to run. He was a moderate rural Republican from down in Scott County, Tennessee. And and Howard Baker once said, and I think it was his father that actually had had said it and and he was re he tried to live by it. He said, I always enter a, a conversation or an argument thinking that I might be wrong and the other guy might be right. And so I think when we approach these discussions, recognizing that the elected officials in Frankfurt represent a constituency that sent them there, and we're all products to a greater or lesser extent of, of, of the influences in our early life, of our upbringing, of our circumstances, and we approach problem solving with those, those filters, and, and that there are some commonalities that we all share. And, and if we can work towards building on those, we can have conversations that are respectful. And, and I have been lucky, you know, Bruce, I've been really lucky in that, in that I, I do, I, the legislative committees have for the most part, and the individual legislators for the most part, have been very respectful, um, despite the fact that we're dealing with some issues that can be very, very contentious. Um, and and I, I, have, I have developed relationships and friendships across the aisle that I cherish. So I agree that we want to emulate that approach. But are there times when you are in a meeting and it's obvious that somebody else on the other side of the, of the discussion is either lying or covering up their true intent? How do you deal with that? How do you call that out? I mean... You were talking about those uh, leases earlier and how some of those were obviously not handled correctly and people were trying to make money or whatever the case may be. How do you, in a committee meeting, do anything about that? Well, I think that's a good question. You know, there, there are times when uh, when you just um, you allow, you know, folks are going to dissemble or they're going to be less than than honest, um, I, I don't think you accept it, you know, without, without calling it out. Um, we had something occur uh, during this past session that mm. hasn't occurred to me in 20 years. And that is that somebody sat in front of the committee. Um, they were back on their heels a little bit because I had just uh, kind of uh, taken the position that they were advocating uh, and had responded to it. Uh, and they lied to the committee about uh, a position that I supposedly took on the bill when it was over in the other chamber. Mm. 
And they not only said, well, I think that he took this position. They said, I remember distinctly that he was asked this question and he answered it and said that he supported, that he thought it was a pretty good bill. Well, I went back and I listened to the tape and, and I wasn't asked that question. I said nothing of the kind. Now, you know, what happens in, in those sorts of circumstances, I just make a mental note that that person is not a person of honor. And that's mm. not somebody I'm not going to pay attention to in the future. I also contacted the committee and I said, here's the tape of that session. Here's here is my testimony. So you can review it if you want to, because I value. You know, I don't expect everybody to like me for God. You know, you know no, that's that's not why you go into this kind of work. Because you expect to be popular, expect to be liked. But I do expect not to be lied about. Mm. Uh, and I don't expect my position to be misrepresented. And that, so that bothered me. And, but that happens very rarely. For the most part, um, the uh, people can disagree. Sometimes they don't disagree as respectfully as they need to. But I, I think by hewing to the facts, um, that that is, you know, that is what's important. Um, and and I think that that is appreciated um, by the committee, uh, even when they do not agree, um, that they appreciate the fact that, I, that we have a perspective, that there is a constituency, uh, a, a lot of people that agree that we need to be thinking about the next generation when we're making decisions on natural resources, extraction and development and pollution, and that... Uh, uh, and I think that so that you know, we and, and sometimes, you know, people do get facts wrong. But in, in the vast majority of the cases, it's not a matter of malice. Mm. It's a matter of, of the fact that that uh, they they, you know, they're required to know a little bit about a lot. And sometimes the where you get that information is simply not accurate. So so part of it's an education process. Sometimes it takes some patience because, um, you know, sometimes uh, people take positions or say things um, not because they particularly want to engage in a conversation, but because they're making a point. But but, you know, the, the at, at the end of the day, um, there there are there's more good faith than bad uh, in the process. You know, the problem is, is that not enough people are engaging in the process. And it's never been easier for people to engage mm -hmm. with the legislative process. You know, the, the uh, uh, it's all, it's online. Um, you know, we're, we're not Washington where it's difficult to get the attention of anybody in Congress here, 10 people contact their legislator. It makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And so it really is, you know, it's, it is a, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for people to be directly involved um, in the decisions that affect their their pocketbook, affect their air quality, affect their water quality. Uh, it's never been easier to get involved. It seems to me that I have seen more bills in the past few years that have been written by outside agencies of, of one kind or another, lobbyists or companies or organizations or whatever. That's how it seems to me. Uh, even even to the point of a legislator being asked about a bill and and supposedly said, I don't know what's in it. I just filed what I was handed. Um, right. Is 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 that just my misreading or is it more of that now than before? 
no, I think that, I think it's always the case that that um, you know legislators um, in some cases will file a bill because it's something that they themselves are very concerned about. Mm-hmm. That's the reason that some people actually go to the legislature, right? Because something has impelled them to want to be there, to want to work on a particular issue. Um, I remember one legislator who was planning on actually retiring to Florida, and he got so angry at his senator when he went to ask him a question. The guy kind of blew him off that he decided to run against him. Mm. Uh, so, um, but in many cases, across the spectrum, people will look to model legislation. You know, we have the American Bar Association and other groups have model legislation on on. Um, business, uh, you know, the uh, Business Corporation Act or the, um, you know, the different model legislation. Problem is when you start getting into interest groups that are developing legislation that is um, funded with dark money mm-hmm. so that you don't know who is behind the, the, uh, the uh, various you know, legislative councils that are doing these bills. And when we start thinking that we need to adopt those just because somebody else has, as opposed to whether we need it. For example, one of the bills that got passed during this last session is the so-called RAINS Act, R-E-I-N-S, um, which is premised, uh, it, there's a national RAINS Act, and then there's other state iterations that are pushed by one of the the uh, corporate-funded legislative councils. And the premise of it is that we need to rein in the agencies because they're out of control in adopting regulations. And so what it says is if you have any regulation that costs over a certain thousand dollars, you know, 50,000 or whatever the, the uh, half, of, I forget what the, the price tag is that you have to, um, uh, that you need it, you know, you, every regulation needs a cost analysis and that cost analysis um, if it's over a certain threshold, then that um, needs to be uh, flagged for the legislators. Um, and of course, the reality is, is there's already a cost-benefit analysis that is is in the existing law. So there is no reason to adopt House Bill 594. Right. The second point is it looks only at the costs rather than looking at costs and benefits. Mm-hmm. And sure, you know, Putting up a fence in 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 around a vat of acid in your factory is a cost, but if it keeps somebody from falling into it and dying, it's probably a cost that's worth spending. So when you're not looking at the benefits and the costs, you're getting a skewed idea. But the idea that these agencies need to be reined in, you know, I testified against the bill because I found that offensive, um, and I found it offensive because the folks who work for these state agencies are working at short pay to try to implement legislative mandate. And the overwhelming amount of the regulations that are being adopted are in response to federal regulation changes because the legislatures decided we should run those programs. So the agencies have to adopt those regulations. And so there's really no value in doing yet another review. Now, that having been said, the representative who sponsored the bill, Phil Pratt, happens to be someone who I have a lot of affection for. He's a, he represents Scott County, does an excellent job. We just happen to disagree that that bill is needed, right? And so I, I think there are legitimate policy debates that we can have. But I think we always need to look at, you know, 
is the bill that's being considered something that we need mm-hmm. as a commonwealth? Is it going to move us forward? You know, we're the fourth poorest state in the nation per capita. Is this going to increase the the financial security, the health, the 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 um, food security, other types of security for our citizens? You know, you, security in terms of utility, affordability in terms of other things, or is it not going to help us? And if it's not going to help, then why do it? Right. Right. We don't need to do it just because Indiana does it or Tennessee or some other state does it. And so when somebody says, well, we should do this because 34 other states do this, you know, one of the arguments that was made during the last session is we should weaken our controls over land application of sewage sludge because other states just use the federal standards. And my response was, I really don't care what other states do or don't do. The question is, are our standards appropriately protective of the productive capability of that farmland? Because if you overload it with metals and other contaminants, because it's a cheaper way for for municipalities to get rid of their wastewater sludges, well, then we're being, you know, we're being penny wise and pound foolish. Um, right. Because we're because we're not manufacturing any more farmland, and we need to protect that land. So, tell me about the shoes. <laughs> well, you're going to love this. Okay, back in 1978, I got a pair of shoes that a friend of my late brother Rick's um, was uh, up in Eastern Kentucky. His uncle had passed away, and his uncle was kind of the Imelda Marcos of Eastern Kentucky. He liked a good pair of shoes, mm-hmm. and he was mostly <clears throat> shut in for the last couple of years of his life. And when he died, there were several pairs of good shoes that had never been worn in his closet. So I happened to be stopping by my brother's house in Louisville. And the uh, his friend said, uh, what size are your feet? And I said, well, if I could straighten them out, because they're pretty pigeon-toed, they'd be about a 10 and a half. He says, I've got a pair of shoes for you. So he gave me this pair of brown wingtips. Well, I'd wear them to the legislature. And I wouldn't. I didn't polish him because I've just never been really good about that sort of thing. Well, Herbie Deskins, who's the chair of the House Committee on Natural Resources at the time, he's a, an attorney up in Pike County. He said, "Fitzgerald, when are you going to shine these shoes?" And I should have kept my mouth shut, but I, I'm incapable of keeping my mouth shut. So I said, "When are you going to pass a good bill?" And so it became this joke that became this long-standing kind of thing of of of. Uh, legend, which is that the shoes get shined when a good bill gets passed. Um, I ran into uh, Rocky Atkins, who's a former uh, uh, majority leader who's now working uh, in the governor's office. And um, and he's, he remembered the last time that the shoes had gotten shined because it was a bill that he had worked on. And, mm. and I had the privilege of working with him on. So I got a call from Rachel Platt um, a couple of weeks ago that the Frazier Museum, History Museum, wants my shoes. <laughs> and oh, I, said, I, said, I said, Rachel, you have now turned me in from, from a, a, a former uh, director of the Resources Council. I've now become an antiquity. <laughs> so I said, I wasn't, wasn't quite ready for that. So uh, that may be where the shoes are heading. That's classic. <laughs> All right. So... There's a whole bunch of stuff to choose from, but let me ask you the, the negative question of all the years you've been in Frankfurt, 
what is the worst legislation regarding natural resources that you have seen passed? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, it, it's hard to, to identify a, a single bill or a single measure that was the worst. But I think, I think probably one of the most problematic has to have been, and it's not a single bill, mm. but it's a, it's a provision that has been incorporated into several different bills but which we have successfully prevented from being adopted across the board. Mm. And we fought this several times over the, not in recent years, because nobody's really pushed it in recent years. But when, when Congress stepped in to protect air, waste, water, you know, to, to deal with environmental pollution, it did so because in many cases, the states were either unwilling or incapable of effectively doing so. Because the states... You know, states are bordered by other states, and there's always this kind of competitive one-downsmanship where you're, you're not going to try to impose controls on your mining any stricter than West Virginia or any stricter than Indiana or any stricter than Ohio or Tennessee because you're afraid that industry is going to pick up and move. Right. They're going to make their investments somewhere else because they're looking for the most lax regulatory environment. And there's this powerful myth that economic development and environmental quality can't coexist. Mm -hmm. And it is a myth because those states historically that have done the best in terms of economic progress are the ones that have higher standards mm -hmm. of responsibility and accountability. And nowadays you see a bunch of companies that are looking, that are fairly portable, that want to go to the states that have better quality of life, you know, more highly trained and educated workforce, those sorts of things. But historically, the idea of environmental progress and economic development being at, at, at intractable loggerheads has mm -hmm. been a powerful myth. Well, we adopted, you know, the General Assembly made a decision that they wanted Kentucky to run the air programs, the water programs under the Clean Water Act, the mining programs under the Surface Mining Act, they also included language that said, agency, you will seek primary authority or primacy for these programs. But where the federal standard says, you, you, states, you can't be any less stringent than these standards, we're going to make it state law that you can be no more stringent than the minimum federal standard. Right. So when federal standards are relaxed, Kentucky follows suit. And where this federal, where Congress said, this is the floor of environmental protection, mm -hmm. we turned that floor into our ceiling. And there are legitimate cases where those federal standards are not adequate and where the lack of adequacy has resulted in death or in illness or in loss of property. And that, in those cases, has been tragic. You know, um, I lost a client who was crushed to death when a coal waste dam failed and mm -hmm. and swept down through the, the holler that she lived in and, and, and crushed her to death. That didn't happen because of overly rigorous regulation. It right. happened because the regulations were too weak and were not being enforced. Right. And so 
So I think that whole idea that that we can only progress as a state by being a cheap date, by by having the minimum standards, that's not much of a legacy to be leaving for our kids. And I think that 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 mentality has been difficult. Um, We saw it last year when when the legislature adopted a no more stringent than clause regarding occupational health and safety standards. Mm -hmm. That's not what we need to, that's not the message to send our employers or our workforce is that we're going to do the minimum that is required by the federal government because federal government doesn't always get it right. You know, sometimes they're the, the politics get in the way of doing the right thing in Washington as well as we've seen. So we need, we need to allow the agencies to do what the science requires what public health requires, what being prudent requires, rather than saying you can't go any further than the minimum standard that's been adopted at the federal level. If that's, if that's all we're going to do, why even manage the programs? Why not let the federal government do them for us? Um, because we have unique needs. We have unique geology, unique geography, unique needs in terms of our, 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 uh, our state, and we need that flexibility. So I think that's really what has been disappointing as much as anything, Bruce. And, and you know, we've, we've had ups and downs. You know, AT&T uh, managed to deregulate uh, telephone service um, several years ago. And we fought that bitterly because we knew that rural areas would lose out mm-hmm. and that the investment would go to the cities. You know, now we're spending millions of dollars trying to extend broadband to rural areas um, and uh, that are unserved or underserved because the free market didn't serve them because sure. it was cheaper to stay in the cities and to up, you know, upscale what's going on in the cities, but rural areas have been left behind. So I think, you know, I, I think that, that um, there is a legitimate role for reasonable regulation. And I think that, uh, uh, that, we're, we're too afraid sometimes to say that. So then let's go to the other side of the coin. What is the thing that you are most proud of that has happened in your time there? Well, I think there's a couple of things. You know, one is, is, is early on uh, that, that uh, the legislature realized that the broad form mineral deed and the 1956 Supreme Court or Court of Appeals decision that allowed strip mining and destroying the surface of land under turn of the century deeds that have been signed in many cases with an X by landowners mm-hmm. um, was was wrong and needed to be changed. And so when the legislature, you know, after the valiant efforts by grassroots groups across eastern Kentucky to try to get the courts to change uh, and to reverse the Buchanan decision, the fact that the legislature stepped up and attempted to do so um, by passing a couple of different statutes, which the court struck down, but then by passing a constitutional amendment, which 86%, I think, of the voters supported that reinstated the common sense rule that when you construe a deed, you use terms like mining the way that the folks who signed the deed would have thought of it uh, rather than new forms of mining that were unheard of at the time, 
that was a that was a great day for the legislature and a great day for Kentucky's courts. Um, I think the solid waste reform in 1991, mm-hmm. um, which turned us from being one of the states that was most lax in the way that we regulated garbage and made us the dumping ground for New York and New Jersey's garbage to, to one of the best states in the nation in terms of the way that we were managing waste. And then the, sub- the subsequent 2001 special session um, was very important. I think the, the, the uh, uh, adoption of net metering, um, I think some of the other reforms that have been done in terms of environmental protection have been important. They're, they're not very frequent when they happen, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they do happen. And when they happen, it makes an appreciable difference in the quality of people's lives. And then there are, there are many smaller things that occur. You know, the, the work that is done, for example, in this last legislative session, um, the, uh, and, and a lot of it is due to, uh, to the receptiveness of, uh, of, of some of the key uh, legislators, particularly Senator McDaniel, um, we got some a- additional um, money into the budget to help the Public Service Commission, which has a critical role mm-hmm. in in being the gatekeeper to keep utilities to try to keep utilities affordable, and and um, and it's a difficult job. They've been understaffed for years, and we managed to get some money in the budget for them. The House and the Senate, in a bipartisan way, have passed uh, uh, passed reform measures on oil and gas, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing we've been negotiating with the oil and gas industry uh, as part of the oil and gas work group, and have, to their credit, the Oil and Gas Association in Kentucky has stepped up and supported reasonable regulation. We were able to deal with the issues of naturally occurring radioactive waste. Uh, in the oil and gas industry. So I, I think, you know, one, one of the things that we've learned, Bruce, is, is that if you can collaborate, you know, collaborate rather than collaborate, <laughs> we That's can good. get a lot. Yeah, that was my brother, my late brother, Rick. He said, you know, he said, we need to, to uh, 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 work on, on collaboration and not collaboration. Uh, and uh, I think we've learned that when we do that, that we can find common ground and we can move the state forward. We did more in seven years of working with the oil and gas industry to modernize and extend protections uh, on oil and gas operations than had been done in the previous 25 years. And so I think, I think there's some opportunities there. Um, and to the extent that the legislature can support that, um, I think that's a good use of, of everyone's time. Um, we managed to get, I think, the grand total of negative votes on all of those bills that got passed over the years. I think there were maybe three mm-hmm. negative votes on on several pieces of major legislation. The most recent one this year was changing the definition of orphan wells because there's 14,000 or so that we know of and potentially that many more that need to be plugged and re- and reclaimed. Uh, and now there's federal money under the Infrastructure Act to do that. Good. And we've got the same sort of legacy in terms of abandoned mines that need to be uh, properly reclaimed. So last question. So, um, as you are somewhat walking out the door uh, as you are retiring, uh, 
if you were going to name one issue that you want your successor or any other organization to really work on, what would it be? Oh, that's, uh, I've got something for you. Um, A couple of months back, somebody who has, has done some funding for KRC over the years, a lot of funding actually, said, you know, we have been really working hard. Well, everybody's been working hard to try to advance environmental protection to try to deal with climate change and other issues over the years. What can we do to really move the needle? And I said, you know, we need an unprecedented effort to involve the public in the day-to-day management of the quality of their environment. Mm. You know, there are thousands of permits that are issued every year, whether it be zoning changes, it be air permits, water permits, waste permits, and the number of times that the public is actively involved in reviewing those and commenting on them and, and providing some balance is minimal because people, you know, some of these processes are hard to access. It's hard to understand. They don't have a whole lot of time. They don't have access to experts that can help them in engineering or biology or chemistry. They don't have access to attorneys who will help assist them if they need to do a challenge. So we have a proposal that KRC is is working on and we'll be collaborating with other organizations on it. We're trying to secure the funding for it right now. Mm-hmm. And you may your your listeners may be hearing about it. It's called the Good Trouble proposal after okay. Congressman Lewis. Because Congressman Lewis said we need to stay in good trouble, necessary trouble. Yep. And this will be an unprecedented invitation to citizens to become familiar with the different permitting processes and to use their voices to help make positive change in their neighborhoods and in their communities. And so there will be opportunities for training, opportunities for support uh, to get involved in everything from zoning to air permits, Mm. to water permits, to uh, solid waste permits, to land farming permits. Uh, And so look for the good trouble proposal. And, and those opportunities, because over the course of the next year, that, that initiative will be gearing up. And that's something that I hope we'll see that the agencies will be getting a whole lot more public involvement, that, that facilities that do have discharges into the air and the land and the water will find folks in communities that are willing to not only step up and, and to hold them accountable, but hopefully to collaborate with them on ways that we can reduce pollution and can jointly safeguard the building blocks of a healthy economy, which are clean air and clean water and uncontaminated land. So that's, that's the legacy that I'm hoping that, that the new director, Ashley Wilms, who is going to do a great job at KRC, is going to carry forward um, along with our members and, and with, a, uh, with a very supportive board. So, so look for the good trouble proposal. <laughs> All right. Tom Fitzgerald, a Kentucky icon who has been making good trouble for many, many years. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. That was Tom Fitzgerald, usually known as Fitz, director of the Kentucky Resources Council. It was such an honor for me to be able to speak with him 
and to learn more about all the work he's done through the years, making Kentucky a better place. I hope his retirement is enjoyable, but I have a feeling that even in retirement, he's going to be making some good trouble. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next podcast.